Well, good morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 in the Gospel of Luke. And again, it's great to be here with you. Um, as Camper said, my name is Andrew. This is my wife in the front row, Laura Kate. Laura Kate, you want to give a wave or something? There you go. And we're expecting our first child. We've been married six years. Uh, and we have just moved from St. Louis to the Raleigh, North Carolina area. We're with Mission to the World now, and we're raising support to go to Bogota, Colombia. So that's a little of who we are. Um, it's really great to be here. I'm excited. Uh, we have a lot of friends here, so it's fun to see this church and hear or, or uh, meet some of the folks we've heard about so much. Um, I'm also excited because our story this morning is a fishing story. Okay, and uh, I'm a sucker for a good fishing story. It's a big part of my own story. And if you know a thing or two about fishing stories is that typically they don't serve much of a purpose other than to tell you how good the angler is. Like uh, Mr. Freshwater, his fish keeps getting bigger and bigger. Well, this fishing story this morning is a little different. It actually comes to us in the early part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is building his ministry team. He's calling disciples to himself. And it's a fishing story, unlike others, that is actually true and that my hope will change the way we think about this mission of growing God's church. So look on with me as I read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished teaching, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray. Father, there's never been a time in human history when your people haven't needed to hear from you, and this morning is no different. Lord, we know that what we do here as we listen and as I preach, that none of this is worth anything if you're not in it. So we pray that by your Spirit, you would be in this. Lord, we need to hear from your word. We need to be shaped by it. So do that work on our hearts this morning. Remind us of the goodness of the gospel in your son Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, I don't know what things are looking like at your house this week, but I'm guessing they're a little different than they've looked the rest of the year. Maybe you've decorated a little. Maybe you've put up a tree. Maybe your sugar intake is through the roof now because of all the delicious cookies you're making. Well, as I, move, or as I 
married my wife, Laura Kate, we had to, about this time of year, sort through family traditions because you can't just use all the traditions from both sides of the family. Well, one tradition that was absolutely a non-negotiable was this tradition of watching Christmas movies. I'm not kidding you when I say Christmas doesn't happen at the Harvey household unless we watch the same eight or nine or 10 or 11 Christmas movies. And so this was new for me. I had to kind of work through my issues with this because I can only watch a Muppet Christmas Carol so many times and not go crazy. But one Christmas special that I really don't mind seeing every year is a Charlie Brown Christmas. I'm sure you've seen it. If you haven't, then you know who Charlie Brown is from the comics or from the other specials. If you know anything about Charlie Brown, it's that he never seems to be able to get anything right. So I dug pretty deep here in my research. I'll read you what Wikipedia says about Charlie Brown. <laughs> Charlie Brown is a lovable loser, a child possessed of endless determination and hope. Not too bad. But who is ultimately dominated by his insecurities and a permanent case of bad luck and is often taken advantage of by his peers. He and Lucy Van Pelt star in a running gag that reoccurs throughout the series. Lucy holds a football for Charlie Brown to kick and pulls it away before he kicks it, causing Charlie Brown to fly in the air and to fall onto his back. And we all wonder, Charlie, when are you going to learn how to punt, man? I mean, come on. Every time. So if I could describe Charlie Brown with one word, it would be this. Unusable. If you remember from that Christmas special, Lucy puts Charlie Brown in charge of the Christmas play. And like everything Charlie touches, it falls apart. The kids don't listen to him. They keep breaking out into that funny dance. And finally, Lucy is like, all right, this place needs a leader. I'm taking charge. Charlie and Linus, go to the Christmas tree uh, stand and buy us a Christmas tree. It will set the proper mood. So her instructions are clear. You remember? Go and you pick out the biggest, the shiniest, the most aluminum Christmas tree you can find. And what do they do? Charlie and Linus pick out the only living wooden Christmas tree and it's pitiful looking. This is what has come to, known, come to be known as a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And so when they return to the gang with their Christmas tree, this is what they hear. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I told you he would goof it up. He's not the kind you can depend on to do anything right. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Completely hopeless. So obviously we're not going to talk about Charlie Brown all morning. Um, I hope no one's ever said those things to you or about you. I'm sure they probably have. But I know that you've at least thought those things about yourself. You can't do anything right. You're hopeless. That's why the creator of Charlie Brown, Charles Schultz, was such a brilliant man. He understood that this character, Charlie, we wouldn't just pity him. We would actually identify with him. And so if you're like me this morning and you come to a text like this, you feel especially unusable. You feel especially Charlie Brownish when it comes to the ministry of growing the church. Here's what I mean when I use the term ministry. I mean the efforts of the church, especially uh, as it seeks to reach the unreached. That's what I mean by ministry. And in this passage today, Jesus promises Peter that he's going to use Simon Peter to build his church. And this is a promise that isn't just for Peter. This is a promise that because of the Great Commission, 
is to all of us. Every single one of us is involved in this ministry of making disciples all over the globe. Jesus promises that he's going to build his church with people like you and with people like me. And so the natural question is, how? How are you going to do this with people who feel like Charlie Browns, people who feel unusable? Am I gifted enough to do this, really? Am I good enough? Well, Jesus tells us he's going to do it in two ways. First, he's going to build his church with people like us through his lordship. And he's going to build his church with people like us despite our sinfulness. Let's think first about lordship. Here's what I mean when I use that word. Jesus' lordship is his power, his authority, his dominion, his ownership that he possesses over all things. Luke has already given the reader a hint about the lordship of Jesus. A couple chapters back, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We don't know if the crowds gathering to hear Jesus teach know that about him or not. We know that whenever he teaches, they want to come and hear it because he's saying incredible things. And so they gather. They not only gather, they actually press in on him. And so in our story, in order to teach comfortably, Jesus has actually got to go out onto a boat to teach them. Peter, who Luke focuses on, may have already understood a little bit about the lordship of Jesus. A chapter back, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And I don't know about your family. I have a wonderful mother-in-law, but if her quality of life has improved, it's good for me too, you know? And so when Jesus says, hey, Peter, can I use your boat? No problem. No problem. So he's there. He's teaching. Then the crowds leave. We have to assume that they leave because when Luke tells us about the crowds, he typically will tell us when they react to something astonishing. And what Jesus is about to do here is astonishing. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Does this seem funny to you? Keep in mind that Jesus is not a professional fisherman. He may have known a lot about fishing. I don't know. Fishing may have been a big part of his life. I grew up in the mountains of western North Carolina, and so I love to go trout fishing. But I would never, never pretend to be a professional fisherman. So do you guys know who Bill Dance is? The guy on the nature, he's on the Canadian channel, he wears the Tennessee Volunteers hat. He's a really famous professional fisherman. Well, it would be crazy of someone like me who loves fishing to call up Bill Dance and be like, Hey Bill, yeah, I've been watching your show, great job. Look, if you'll just cast over there a little more, if you'll reel a little more slowly, or, you know, there's this new lure, if you'll just try that, you'll have better luck, I think. People would think that I was crazy to do something like that. I'm not a professional fisherman. Well, I don't know, but the crew there with Peter may have thought the same about Jesus' advice to go fishing here. What does a carpenter have to tell a professional fisherman about fishing? The other thing that's strange about this request is Jesus is saying, let's go fishing during the day. So if I wanted to catch my trout, I'd wake up about five in the morning and I'd go and I'd get to the river before the sun rises and I'd have about two to three good hours of fishing. But in this particular region of the world, all the commercial fishing was done at night. Jesus is saying, hey guys, it's daytime, let's go fishing, right? Right? No. 
That's strange. And then the next thing. These guys have just punched the clock. They're done. They're tired. They're ready to go home, see their families, eat, rest. They don't want to go to work again. Can you imagine in your area of expertise, at your job, if somebody were to come up to you, a novice even, and say, hey, I know you've just worked a hard day. I know it was toilsome and fruitless, but let's, let's try something a little unconventional. Let's, you know, let's do it again. You'd say, no way. Why would I do that? Well, I don't know what the people on Peter's crew were thinking, but Peter at least didn't dismiss Jesus altogether because he's already starting to trust this man, Jesus. He's willing to listen to him. And it pays off for him big time. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I found a uh, children's Bible illustrating this story. And the illustration was two or three men on a boat about the size of this table. And they were struggling. The boat was kind of tipping over. They were struggling to pull in this net of fish. It was a pretty impressive catch, but I'm assuming that sort of thing happens a lot. And then I started thinking, you know, there's got to be something different about that. Is that really how it happened? Well, apparently boats uh, in this time were like 20 to 30 feet long. These were, these were big boats, which means this was a, an impressive catch. And there were two of them. And they were so full that the men on board literally thought that they were going down. They thought, we're doomed, we're sinking. We're going to lose all this, lose our investment. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the lordship of Jesus. He doesn't have access to some early, uh, early version of a fish finder. He doesn't need that. Listen, listen to the way that Paul describes the lordship of Jesus in Colossians 1. He says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. We're not told the details of what was happening at creation, but we are at least told that the Son of God, before time existed, the Son of God existed, and that he played a crucial role in the creation of all things. And that now, even, he sustains all things. That's the reason Jesus doesn't need any sort of a fish finder for this. He's Lord. He created every single one of those fish. He knows them. He knows the spots and the stripes and the fins on them. As a matter of fact, he's the only reason those fish can live and breathe and reproduce and eat. Because he's sustaining them. Just like he sustains our next breath. He's Lord. So why does this matter? Well, if you're like me, you come to a passage like this, a glimpse into the lordship of Jesus gives someone who feels unusable when it comes to growing the church hope. 
Because if Jesus can fill up two big boats at the wrong time of day with no fishing expertise, with people who have already punched the clock, then he can use someone like me to minister, to reach the unreached. He can use folks like us to minister the gospel to the people in our families, in our workplaces, at our schools, in our communities, our neighborhoods, in our city. And so the call of this passage is, are you going to trust him to do that? And are you going to be a part of it? Are you going to trust him and are you going to be a part of it? In the midst of all this fish-catching chaos, Jesus also tells us he's going to build his church through people like us despite our sinfulness. And the first way we see this is through the confession of Simon Peter in verse 8. Look with me there, if you will. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And if we thought that Jesus' request to go fishing was funny, this is really weird. Okay? Imagine it. You're on one of these boats and you're hauling in this massive catch of fish. Biggest catch of your life. The boat you think may be going down. You're not sure. So you're panicking. Fish are flopping everywhere. You may be standing on fish. I have no idea. But it's chaotic. And you look over and you see Simon Peter. What's he doing? He's not tying things down. He's not securing things. He's at Jesus' knees. And he's confessing that he's a sinner. And he's asking Jesus to leave him. That's weird. What sort of sense does that make? Well, keep in mind that Peter is a Jew, and even though it hasn't happened for a while in redemptive history, he realizes that whenever God, whenever God shows up among his people, his people have a big, big problem. It's their sin. I'm going to remind you of a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. This is Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In that scene, all the angels can do is sing of the Lord's holiness. It's because when the Lord shows up, there's this immediate gap. It's a gap between His goodness, His holiness, His righteousness, and our sinfulness. That's why Isaiah says, woe to me. That's why, that's why Peter says, you've got to leave. I'm a sinner. And I don't know if Peter is confessing any particular sin here. I think he's probably confessing a general state of sinfulness. And he knows that he can't stand before a holy God in this state. He realizes that. And as strange as this scene is with the fish flopping around and Peter confessing his sins, what Peter's doing is the right thing to do. 
Friends, you and I are sinners. We can't stand before God in our sin. We need Jesus to take care of our sin. Otherwise, we've got to do what Peter's doing. We've got to say, get out of here, or I've got to go. It would be dangerous for us to stand in God's presence in our sin. And so as miraculous as this catch of fish is, in my mind, what's even more incredible in this passage is Jesus' reaction to Peter's confession of sin. Look with me at the last part of verse 10. After Peter's confessed that he's a sinner, Jesus says to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. This is good. You notice how Jesus doesn't say, Oh yeah, Peter, you're right. I've forgotten that you were a sinner. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I'd better get out of here. Or yeah, what are we going to do about the harsh way you treat your children or the arguments you have with your wife? Or those adulterous thoughts, Peter? What are we going to do about those? Maybe you should figure out your pride or your impulsive behavior and then come and talk to me. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Friends, all of us this morning need to hear Jesus say to us, don't be afraid. Whether you've been a believer, a follower of Jesus for 50 years, for five years, for five minutes, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, your only hope in this world is to have Jesus say to you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm going to take care of your sin. Don't be afraid because I'm going to commit to a life of being mistreated and misunderstood for you. Don't be afraid because I'm going to undergo the wrath of my Father, the most horrible thing in human history, so that you can live and have fellowship with us forever. Don't be afraid. And it's appropriate for us to, when we come to parts of the scripture like this to say, if you if you, haven't, if you don't sense this type of security in the Lord Jesus, or if you're still wondering who he is and why what he's done is important, would you talk to someone here? I know that Camper would be happy to talk to you. Elders would be happy to you. Youth, Annette would be really happy to talk to you. Students, Ben would love to talk to you. Kids, your parents would love to have this type of conversation with you if you're wondering about who Jesus is. Talk to somebody, because you can't stand to live in that type of fear. It's not worth it. Well, not only does Jesus refuse to leave us in light of our sinfulness, he actually plans on using us to grow his church despite our sinfulness. And sadly, there's a common misconception in the church today, and it's really the, it's our fault as teachers that the only people who really do ministry are those who do so as a vocation. So your campus ministers, your pastors, your missionaries, your youth leaders. And that's not the story that the Bible tells. As a matter of fact, if you are a part of God's people, if you're trusting in Christ, you're in this mission. This involves you. It's in your DNA. It's who you are. Remember when In Genesis 12, when God blesses Abraham, he gives him family, 
he, he gives him uh, land and bless and uh, riches. And he doesn't do that just so Abraham can live a comfortable life. He does that so that Abraham and his family will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's part of who he is. It's part of who we are as God's people. And then God calls us in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And even though priests sounds funny to our ears, priests in the Bible are people who stand between God and the watching world to represent one to the other. And so we commit to our non-believing friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family. We commit to loving them, to communicating God's truths to them, to praying for them, to actually getting to know them, getting in their lives, spending time with them. That's what we're called to do, all of us, as God's people. And there's more good news. You don't have to have a Bible degree to do ministry. You don't. Peter doesn't. You don't have to have a real robust, technically solid confession of faith. Peter's confession of faith is really, really simple. Very simple here. And you don't have to have unshakable faith. Give Peter just a couple more chapters, and he's going to drop the ball again. He's going to question Jesus' character, his goodness, his identity, his Lord. As a matter of fact, the only prerequisite for doing ministry in God's church is acknowledging your sinfulness, according to this passage. That's it. So as you are in this process as a church calling a pastor, uh, you have, I don't know how many men that will submit their applications, their resumes to you. And your church will go through these. These men, as they're, as they're in this process, it's not too different from the process that you all have experienced or maybe you're currently experiencing as you do the job search thing. <laughs> Typically, you try to make yourself look just as perfect as you possibly can. You want somebody to look at your strengths and your experience and to say, that is the candidate, that's the one. We want that person. Well, Jesus, in this passage, as shocking as it is, is asking us to submit a resume that is actually quite the opposite of our strengths and our experiences. He's asking us to submit a resume that exposes every single one of our shameful acts. All the things we've done wrong, our weaknesses, our failures, that's what he's asking us to do. A lifetime of never measuring up is all Peter has to offer Jesus. And Jesus says, perfect, Peter. You're just the man I'm looking for. Friends, this morning, if some of you are thinking about this type of commitment to God's mission of growing his church, and you're thinking, I can't do that because of this sin that I struggle with every single day that I can't seem to kick, then you need to hear Jesus say to you, perfect, you're just the man or the woman I'm looking for. He does. Or if it's something that you deeply regret from your past, some shameful act, Jesus says to you, you're perfect. You're just the man or the woman I'm looking for. Because the good news of the gospel is that God's not afraid of sinners. And he's not afraid to grow his church with people who don't have it all together. There's a lot of pressure in our culture to have it all together. And that's just not the way it works in the church. Bring all your messiness, bring all your I don't have it figured out 
Bring all of your sin, and Jesus will use you. To me, this looks a lot like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. So a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, it's not pre-decorated. It's not very lovely. It's not really useful. It's pitiful looking. But in the words of Linus, all it needs is a little love, right? And so with a little love and some sweet old school animation, this pitiful looking Charlie Brown Christmas tree becomes wonderfully useful and beautiful. Well, that's the way it is with us. Jesus goes after those of us who feel unusable, who feel like Charlie Browns, and he makes us wonderfully useful and beautiful. Guys, he's given us his perfection. He's given us his life. He's given us his spirit. And so the call of this passage is to recognize our own limitations and to lean on Jesus to do what he's going to do. He's going to build his church. He's going to do it through people like you, people like me. So let's pray to that end.